Hello, this is FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Dot Esports Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ahmad Khan of CNET. Earlier this month, Overwatch League teams began a collective bargaining process against the League, according to a report from Jacob Wolf. His report says that League teams retained British law from Sheridan to start a bargaining process after, quote, years of high operating costs and continually missed promises on revenue, end quote. The report says tensions are high as teams have spent anywhere from 7.5 to 10 million in franchise payments as well as an additional 1 million in yearly operating costs to maintain their teams. This is on top of the cost to enter the league. Season 1 teams had to pay 20 million for a franchise spot. Season 2 expansion teams paid anywhere from 27 to 35 million per a report from ESPN. The Overwatch League is owed approximately 400 million in franchise payments according to a May 2022 report by Wolf. The decision to collectively organize is being led by Overactive Media, the owners of the Toronto Defiant, according to Wolf. Joining me to discuss the latest developments is Justin Jacobson, an entertainment and esports attorney. He's also the author of The Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming. Justin, thank you so much for coming onto the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Justin, this from the outset seems like a pretty big mess. Uh, but I think the area that I'm most curious about is can teams collectively bargain? I mean, don't didn't they sign a contract? Didn't they know what they were getting into? I mean, I think what's really interesting about this is that, you know, you have multiple teams over multiple jurisdictions in different countries, and they probably all signed a similar agreement to be part of this league and most of these agreements have arbitration clauses where the idea is that any dispute regarding the agreement would be decided via you know alternative dispute resolution so arbitration or mediation so while there's not necessarily anything that says okay we're going to collectively bargain it seems that there's a lot of parties that have a similar you know agenda and a similar kind of mode so it's almost kind of like almost like a class action in theory where it's like a class action negotiation where, you know, not exactly that in the same terms. But if you think about it, you have all these grievous parties all have a similar grievance against the same party and they're trying to resolve it together because the outcome kind of affects all of them. It might not make sense for each one of them to have a separate, you know, law firm or a separate negotiation, especially if all the parties, you know, all the teams in theory are able to agree on what they want and what a proper resolution is. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, because of these agreements have choice of law provisions, whatever the agreement says, that's what kind of guides everything. So, you know, I assume that, you know, there's California law with, you know, Los Angeles County jurisdiction for any dispute. So mm. I'm sure a lot of stuff, you know, is going to be based on that. What's interesting here is that it seems that the teams spent a lot of money to get into the league. Uh, and now the, the the league itself isn't performing, but also that the league teams weren't really paying into uh, uh, into it with their franchise payments. So it's as if everybody's complaining about money that's just not moving around. I mean, I think my understanding is that you know the twenty or twenty five million you don't have to pay it once. You could do it mm -hmm. over you know five years, or you can do five million for five years. And I think that's kind of the thing where you know they deferred the payments because most teams did it. There was. You know, spend twenty million on one pop probably isn't the best use of your thirty or forty million that you just got. Does this essentially put Activision Blizzard in a more favorable position here because they're essentially owed a bunch of money? I mean, I think it's one of these things where, you know, these agreements were based on you know potential projections that might not have been you know as reflecting what they actually were going to be and mm. obviously there's all these statements protecting them and disclaimers but you know they definitely didn't foresee a covid shutting down and 
you know, disrupting the whole, um, you know, in-person economy, which they kind of thought was like a huge thing is going to develop. And then beyond that, what are their actually written obligations to the teams? What are they supposed to do in order to earn these franchise fees, which are really kind of, in their minds, what they need to operate the events and to run the league and do all the administration stuff and, you know, act as a tournament admin. So, you know, it would be interesting to see what their actual obligations are, whether it's to get media rights, to get sponsorship deals, to get these league-wide licensing deals. Everything that is based on the league probably falls on them as the operator of the league. I guess one thing that is also kind of maybe mysterious is how some of these teams really do make money. I mean, apart from uh, participating or getting tournament winnings, it's largely just what skin sales and uh, probably merchandise sales. Has that been seen as a lucrative enough, um, I'd say earn of cash to really support the expense that's being put out into these teams? I mean, you've seen the publicly disclosed numbers. Teams are losing 20 to $30 million a quarter. So, you know, clearly the system as it exists probably needs a bit structuring, but I think you're seeing teams get innovative. You know, G2 Esports launching a record label and, you know, 100 Thieves launching like an apparel line beyond, you know, merchandise or buying high ground or launching a game developer. So you see teams starting to be much more of, you know, a brand and a business property than just, okay, we got to have a good Fortnite player or the best League of Legends or Dota. So I think that, Teams are starting to think that if they diversify, whether it's owning property, opening gaming centers, using some of their specialties, even as talent agents, we've seen Misfits and TSM mm -hmm. and Complexity all open their own talent agents. So it's really interesting to see how teams are kind of trying to, you know, really diversify their income. And part of this diversi diversification maybe has to do with like the larger esports economy. But before we jump into, you know, that line of questioning, we have to also talk about maybe the poor way in which Activision Blizzard has run the Overwatch League. I mean, the first year was pretty solid, uh, got pretty decent view count, but it, with season two and onward, it seemed that there was um, increased divestiture from Activision Blizzard in terms of production, and the game itself started to become stagnant. And then, of course, Overwatch 2 added another layer of complexity. And now that the game is out and free to play, it, 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 I don't think it had the same kind of uh, spark or impact that the first game had when it launched back in 2016. Yeah, I think that, that they kind of thought Overwatch 2 was going to be this huge spark, like the way StarCraft and StarCraft 2, like, regenerate, you know, got everything going again. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think ultimately it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds as you have all of these teams who, you know, if they just decide not to field teams and not to pay the money and just almost boycott the league, what is that going to do for the future of the league, the players? And is it one of these things where they're going to impact the return on investment where they've already spent all this money and fees and salaries and training costs and living expenses and, you know, developing marketing and logos and, you know, all this infrastructure to support these teams? Are they just willing to just walk away from that? In your experience, at least speaking to people on the inside uh, or in the esports industry as a whole, what are some of like, the largest complaints that uh, te teams might have with Activision Blizzard? I mean, I think it's one of these things where there's agreements, you know, have these contract clauses called morals clauses where, mm -hmm. you know, if certain things put you in certain bad reputation or public ridicule, you have the ability to get out of it. And I think as you saw with the slew of litigation and allegations against Activision Blizzard, they lost many or, you know, terminated or paused many sponsors from mm -hmm. Coca-Cola to Kellogg's to Pringles to State Farm to T-Mobile. Like, you know, these are blue chip Fortune 500 mega companies. 
And if your whole ecosystem and almost your job is to secure these, but your actions are unhinging on it, it, it's, you know, a very interesting situation. So I wonder if the contract's covered for this. Maybe there's some kind of clawback or reduction in fees if you're not making X amount or if, you know, the money doesn't cooperate, uh, cover operating expenses for a certain percentage. So I wonder if these kind of things are ever built in or thought about that, you know, it's always good when you negotiate thinking that everything's going to be, you know, rainbows and butterflies. But, you know, we live in the real world where, you know, out of nowhere a global shutdown happens and all these in-person events that you think are going to happen don't mm. happen for two plus, you know, almost three years later. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that these teams actually do have uh, a recourse to take, at, at least in regards to, like, you know, the – I guess the moral rights that they were, I guess, owed by Activision Blizzard and then the uh, fallout that came from the allegations from Activision Blizzard. Can they legitimately say that, okay, now we have a case to, like, bounce out of our contracts because of the actions of Activision Blizzard? I mean, you know, I haven't really looked at specific agreements for the teams participating in these leagues, but, you know, unless there isn't a clause like that, which there might not be, Mm. you know, because I'm sure Activision Blizzard was kind of aware of stuff long before this isn't, you know, like a new thing that happened a year or two ago, I think that you can do research to, you know, that'll say that this kind of stuff potentially has been going on for a long while. Mm. So I think ultimately it comes down to what are the representations in the agreement? What did Activision Blizzard actually have to do? And are they doing it? And to what degree? And, you know, if you're not able to get sponsors, you're not able to get media rights and things that's like kind of your job under the agreement, your obligation you're not really upholding your end of the bargain. So it's like, if you're not doing your side, how can the teams uphold theirs? And I think that's where you kind of get to this dilemma of ultimately a shutdown or long litigation doesn't really help anyone. You know, they're both, all these are big purses and talking about what, 20, 30, however many millions of dollars. So even if you spend 100,000 or 500,000 to save you 10 million, that's probably a good investment. And, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a court injunction that says, okay, well, no one has to pay fees until this is resolved or, you know, the court gets involved because you can't settle it through, you know, alternative dispute, mediation, arbitration that it seems like they're trying to undergo, it'll be very interesting. And this, you know, be one of those things that you study, people are already talking about as a business case study. Maybe it'll be a legal case study as well. Mm-hmm. What, if any, does the... Microsoft purchase of Activision Blizzard uh, have to do with how these teams are considering their actions? I don't know. I think that there's just so much going on, and until that's finalized and the dust settles, and, you know, it feels like it's having different responses from the U.S., U.K., and all these different countries because, obviously, it impacts the whole video game market, the global market, at such a huge degree so I'm interested to see how it all plays out. If it goes through, is it one of those things where when Disney bought Fox, they have to divest certain things and they had to sell off certain properties they couldn't take from Fox? So maybe mm-hmm. that's how it kind of plays out. And then let's jump into the larger esports ecosystem at the moment. Uh, right now, 100 Thieves, or you know, earlier 100 Thieves had to go through some layoffs. Uh, games Media is, go- is being slashed uh across multiple websites, um, but of course that's more of on, on the media side. Uh, what does the, uh, I mean, what are some of the things happening in the esports industry, uh, I guess from a financial perspective, and what does it mean by like the buildup for the last 10 years? 
I mean, I think it's one of these things where the whole economy is finally catched up with it almost being on pause or slow mode for, you know, two plus years. Mm -hmm. So I think it's one of these things where maybe there was this super hype that was fueled by, you know, esports, 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 gaming everywhere. But I do believe, you know, wholeheartedly that this is going to be huge. It is the future that, you know, I don't think it's going to get anywhere near its full form for another five, six, ten years when the kids that are 10, 11, 12, 14, 15 become 18, 19, 25-year-olds. They become this purchase power. They're, you know, and our generation becomes the more decision makers. And, you know, as we kind of cycle through the people that are kind of running things on all levels, that's when I believe this will really see and become what it could be. So mm. I think it's one of those things where there's growing pains and figuring itself out in every industry and – you know, when new things come, you have to shift with it. But ultimately, I think if you look around and, you know, the statistics back it up, you know, how many percentage of teenagers game? Nearly, you know, a majority, if not 60, 70 percent of them. And, you know, then the adult professional age, it's a really high number. So mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, even with the uh, poor economic forecast, you still have an optimistic outlook on the esports industry. Yeah, in the long term, do I think today or tomorrow or a month or two from now or a year from now, things are going to be everyone's getting $500 million, billion-dollar valuations? Probably not. But do I Mm -hmm. think all of a sudden no one's going to be caring about LCS and Dota 2 is not, you know, the international is going to all of a sudden go from $40 million to $5 million? Like, no, I don't think there's going to be this sudden drop, but I think it'll stabilize a bit. You know, depending on how this situation, you know, with Overwatch and Activision Blizzard pans out, it'll be really interesting, especially, mm-hmm. you know, with how Microsoft fits into it. Are you able to really streamline esports for every title that Microsoft and Activision Blizzard has? Like, are you able to create a much more of a global, continuous economy? Are you able to now, because you own the hardware and the software and the developers and the distribution and everything in between... Can you now fully monetize it? Get the everyone else in this ecosystem that I kind of explain in my book how they can kind of fix it a little bit where these teams aren't operating such a huge loss that it almost gets to the point where they just can't do it anymore. Well, I mean, it's uh, I guess we're just going to continue following uh, how the Overwatch League uh, continues to develop uh, throughout the, this upcoming season. And, you know, if, if, if the teams can really come together on some kind of collective bargaining bargaining uh, agreement with, with the league. But with that, Justin, thank you so much for coming on to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, to kind of like tie it up, I think. Ultimately, there'll probably be a deal that'll be made. It's kind of mm-hmm. in both of the parties' interests, and that's why I think they've kind of gone the negotiation, collective, like we're all in this together kind of mode instead of being a bit more hostile because that's probably how you're going to get better results. So, you know, that's how I kind of believe it'll kind of shake out and that was ftw with mod Khan, part of the dot esports podcast network if you enjoyed the show please rate and share to follow justin and keep up to date on the latest in esports law you can follow him at justin j esq on twitter to follow me and my work over at cnet you can find me at imod on twitter and with that we'll catch you guys next week